The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Scorebox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines this Thursday morning. Fitch placing the U.S. AAA rating on negative watch as the political bun fight over the debt ceiling drags on ahead of next week's apparent June 1st deadline. I am not going to give up. We're not going to default. We're going to solve this problem. I will stay with it until we can get it done. We have to spend less than we spent last year. It is not my fault that the Democrats cannot give up on their spending. Um, My read says divisions, but I think differences of opinion emerge at the Federal Reserve over the future path of rates. Uh, Minutes from the last FOMC meeting showing pretty much a range of uh, of views with members less certain on whether more hikes are needed. NVIDIA shares rocket and extended trade, adding over $200 billion in value and taking its market cap to almost $1 trillion as the chipmaker posts its biggest earnings beat since 2018. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis officially enters the 2024 presidential race, but a hugely anticipated Twitter event with Elon Musk melts down amid embarrassing tech issues. Lovely to see you. Good morning, Karen. Or as Ron DeSantis would say, <laughs> Good morning back to you. Oh, yeah. uh, well, some things never don't go to plan, do they? Well, we got the launch, and you know, it was a different platform. We haven't seen that before. Yep. Um, not yep. smooth sailing, no. but then, you know, what no. is these days? No, no. You think they would have might maybe road tested a few. Anyway, whatever. But uh, look, um, I think there's lots to discuss. Already in my first two headlines, I find myself thinking, well, divisions? The Federal Reserve? No, just people have different views. There's a whole host of them, a whole gamut of governors. Why shouldn't there be different views? And in terms of um, my other headline, Fitch, for instance, saying that there's a, there's a June 1st. Is there a June 1st deadline or is that just a self-imposed deadline? Are they really going to run a money bang on that day? And in terms of, dare I say it, my friends over at the rating agencies, have a think about it. It's either AAA or not, yeah? With the US stop being able to raise money thereafter, is there any more risk of default on the dollar-denominated debt? None whatsoever, because they issue their own debt as well. And as far as saying, well, we're worried about the AAA rating, well, we're all worried about the AAA rating, but I don't know what the ratings agencies are adding to the story in terms of, yes, we've seen US debt decline, we've seen the yield pick up, we know what the issue is, what more are you adding to this story? And I know it's our top headline, it's very important, but I just don't know how that helps our viewers. Well, from the very beginning when this debt story uh, started to flare up as an issue, we pointed out that there are two parts to this process. One, what debt ratings agencies could do, because it has ramifications for the way the market treats the debt, versus what the politicians do in terms of actually getting to a solution. So two parts to the process. Uh, You mentioned the state of flux on markets. So basically more of the same. We've seen that all year when it comes to monetary policy and geopolitics. On top of this, we now have a dose of politics around very much a presidential election campaign taking place. You know, you didn't mention the other big one, which was in the the headlines, NVIDIA. What do you do with that? Blow past expectations on the numbers. The stock is a go. But then you've got geopolitics on the other side. This trade war with 
China that could undermine the demand for some of the chips. So, again, I think we've been talking about very complex pieces on markets which could push a trade one way or the other. So you have to make some sort of judgment based on two differing facts at this point. Yeah, and the VIX at 20 is picking up off that 16 low recently, but still, to me, to my mind, doesn't factor in all of these amazing events going on the market. Uh, Anyway, Fitch, top headline, has placed the United States AAA sovereign credit rating on negative watch as lawmakers wrangle over the debt ceiling ahead of, again, my producers keep writing it and they are absolutely right to keep writing it, so I'm not criticising, but I'm going to keep adding the word apparent because I don't know how hard a deadline June 1st is. Now, Fitch's warning came after the White House and Republican negotiators met for another round of talks on Capitol Hill ahead of a week-long Memorial Day holiday recess. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy reiterated there's still a number of points on which they remain a long way apart. There's differences. We know where it's at. You have to spend less than you spent last year. That's not that difficult to do. But in Washington, somehow, that is a problem. They have increased spending with the Democrats in the majority on discretionary spending by more than 33%. No household's been able to afford to do that. We can find waste. We can eliminate that. A big difference in markets this week, say, versus a week ago. While we're getting optimistic comments that there could be a deal struck, markets are not buying into it at this point and remain cautious. The other week when we had a glimmer of hope in the conversation points, the market pushed higher. That is not working now. So the narrative is the market wants confirmation that a deal has been cut from the two sides. What we've got as a result, we're trading down seven-tenths on some of the major markets from the Dow to the S&P in session. Uh, in terms of what it meant for direction, fourth next session in a row for the Dow. Over the course of the week, we've stripped off about 1.8-1.9% from some of these major markets as investors just take stock. Worth noting though, uh, when it comes to the NASDAQ performance, the undercurrents here are still important when it comes to technology and you can see down six tenths of a percent. Most positive stock was Amazon, the weaker link was Alphabet. So the market here just tentative too around monetary policy and what we're seeing out there. In terms of Treasury markets, uh, a quick look at those uh, two-year yields that have extended now to uh, levels that are much higher than what we've seen of late. This is a level not seen since about mid-March, 4.40 where we are perched. So again, investors trying to just pick their way through the playbook on markets, on bond markets ahead of any potential default. At the long end, we're traveling at 3.75. The dollar trade. This is how we are trading this morning. Sterling euro on the back foot. Dollar is king. We've got uh, 123.43. So we've stepped lower by almost two uh, tenths of a percent on cable. Euro has declined about a tenth of a percent. Uh, 107.35. Dollar is firming up versus the Japanese yen. To the commodities complex, uh, WTI and Brent this morning on oil trades, 74 on WTI. We are tracking a little bit weaker. Brent flatlining around the 78 level in the trading session. Asian markets, well, they got that negative handover from Wall Street, and you can see it is somewhat of a mixed bag. Japanese stocks trying to resume the upward trend. It has been one of those markets that has shown very much a hand of strength of late, just destroyed a little bit by the global equities trade around the debt ceiling issue in recent sessions. But today it is parking that aside. We've got a a move higher of about a quarter of 1% here. Other major markets are weaker, though. Hong Kong down uh, 2%. Australian market coming off 1.1%, slightly more modestly downbeat on that Shanghai composite. To the opening calls, this is the European picture. This morning we are chasing green arrows, so perhaps we are done with some of the reading for now. We had a market that was down yesterday, 1.8% coming off the stock share of 600. And if you look at the course of the trading week, it's French stocks that are down the most so far. They've shared about 3.5% 
3.2% at this stage. So exceeding the downward push that you've seen on the U.S. market indices, some of these European markets are traveling a little bit weaker over the course of the trading week so far, Steve. Yeah, not much of a rally after the drubbing we saw yesterday. Thanks, Karen. OK, minutes from the Federal Reserve's latest policy meeting. Well, again, it says shows division over the central bank's policy path. I mean, that show says, like, you know, they're, they're div- there's different views on what they do next. Look, the, the decision to increase the Fed's benchmark rate by a quarter point was actually unanimous. The meeting summary reflected a bit of disagreement over what to do next. But pretty much there's some saying, well, we're going to be data driven again. I can, I can talk you through it if you don't believe me. But officials generally agreeing the need for more rate hikes in the future have become less certain. Tell me someone who doesn't believe that. I think we all agree that, don't we? Anyway, as central banks continue on their tightening path, higher rates have shifted the attitudes of a lot of workers globally. A new workforce report from ADP revealed UK workers' expectations about pay rises for the coming year have skyrocketed, with almost three quarters expecting a salary increase in the next 12 months. That's up from 50% in the previous year. I'm already totally fascinated by this survey because I'm doing a lot of anecdotal speaking to people in hiring, in senior management positions. So I need to speak to Neela Richardson about this. Uh, She joins us now, Chief Economist of ADP, joining Karen and myself. Lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. Just give me the the, the broad brush on what this survey has found, because I think it's fascinating. Well, it's fascinating in the context of the global economy, right? And what we've seen in terms of inflation sticking around much longer than anyone expected. Well, workers have gotten that message too. They're confronting inflation in an everyday way, and they expect their wages to adjust. so what we've seen globally is that people are expecting on average an 8.3% pay bump. 8.3%. That is not consistent with a 2% inflation target. Now, here in the UK, people are more cautious, 5.6%. Yeah. But what that translates to is that their take home is a wage cut. When yeah. you add real inflation on top of that even strong growth, people are not going above inflation in terms of their take-home pay. So it's that, a real that is issue. really interesting. Neela, you guys over at uh, ADP always have your finger on the pulse of your, your private mm-hmm. sector survey in the US every uh, month ahead of the payroll numbers as well. But my, my concern is, that from my conversations, things have already changed from those expectations about the pay rise. In fact, actually, it's moved on. And people who want to work from home are now a little bit more cautious about their protestations. People who want to drop down to four or three days in the office, uh, they've been a little bit more cautious. They're coming into the office a bit more. They're putting their suit back on again. They're little, so I'm just wondering, I hear what you're saying about the global picture and the UK picture, but I'm wondering if it's already changing because as, as the Fed tightens rates and other central banks tighten rates and we slow down and demand just ebbs a little bit, are things already changing from that ebullience in what they think they can get on the salary from? I don't know if it's changing or they're navigating conflicting concerns because job security is definitely a concern. It's the number two most important issue. You want to get paid and you want to keep getting paid and you want your pay to go up with inflation. So I want to get paid loads more money, but I'm really worried about my job security. I better not ask for too much money. And the undercurrent of all this is the change in terms of flexible work because people also realize that they need to balance their private lives with their public lives. And so employers are trying to navigate all of this as well. And so you have all these 
big trends that are affecting people in a really everyday visceral way, and that is the global workforce in 2023. Yeah. To me, there's always a mismatch between the tight labor market and expectations that the central banks would start to tame inflation this year. I mean, we were told for, by a lot of experts in the labor market it was going to take well over a year to start to see this uh, tight labor market correct. Yet the time frame was a lot less than that for central banks getting ahead of uh, the inflation challenge and bringing um, bring it back towards the core rates. Now, as you look at this tight labor market, how much longer do you think it's going to take for the labor market first up to normalize? And where does that sit versus monetary policy as the, you know, the expectations of a pivot later this year still. I wish I could answer that question definitely because what we've seen is that on the one hand, the labor market has been the bright spot of the advanced global economy. The fact that labor markets are so strong has supported consumer spending, but the labor markets are not responding in the traditional way to central bank policy. They're not breaking under the pressure of higher interest rates. In fact, in some countries, they're accelerating and they're staying strong, staying resilient, good news, supporting consumer spending. But the question for every central bank now is how are we going to uh, lower inflation if the labor markets are not responding in the traditional way? Is it through the housing market? Is it through the credit market? We've seen some progress there, but inflation is sticking around much longer uh, than central bankers expected. And I'll go a step further. This is not a one and done, even in the current inflationary period. There's every expectation to think that bouts of inflation will be more persistent and frequent than they've been over the past 10 years. So what is the game plan from central banks, not just once inflation is down now, but into the future? How does the central bank respond to these pressures that keep prices growing? I, I wonder if this takes us to the unpalatable option unemployment. You know, effectively in the past, when you've seen real change, genuine change in consumption patterns, is because the unemployment rate's gone up. And we've often spoken in the past that the Fed has to break something before it stops hiking. Does it actually need to break this tight labor market by driving up the unemployment rate? The Fed is betting that they can lower inflation down to the 2% target without a meaningful, like a strong increase in the unemployment rate. So we're talking, scenario. exactly, right. maybe getting up to a four and a half, maybe 5%. They think that's tolerable. There's enough slack in the labor market that you, you know, you still keep a relatively strong labor market where people can find jobs, uh, might take longer, may not be their first choice, but there is some kind of, uh, uh, opportunity in the system, uh, but still keep inflation down to 2% because the argument they'll make is inflation is bad for workers. And that's what we see in our results that you have to expect higher salaries just to keep up. So the, the number one uh, problem uh, from the central banker's point of view is getting inflation back to 2% target. Now the question is, can they do it and how long will it take? You make the absolutely spot on point about the inflation of the last 10 years. In fact, I'll go as far as to say the last of this okay. century compared with the bouts that you would have studied as a, a, a chief economist at ADP. And 74 to 82, it, pretty much two bouts of inflation within that period. It took about eight years to tame it, what have you. And we were in the early years of the Reagan era before we did as well. Mm -hmm. People have had two to three years of inflation this time around. They're not ready. The markets aren't ready for the long haul. I, mean, do you, I wonder if you get this question a lot about, is the market in, and my words, cloud cuckoo land compared to, as you, given what you just said about the, the longevity and the stickiness of inflation? I think the markets have been very optimistic about inflation. <laughs> okay. and, and 
that's because inflation has morphed. It's not the same inflation. The DNA has shifted out of the pandemic from being supply shock driven and supply chain driven to being service sector driven. And that feeds right back into wages. Wages are the bridge between the labor market and inflation. And the wages that we're seeing, the growth that we're seeing right now is not consistent with 2% inflation. And that is the hard part for the Fed. So the easy part was at the beginning when the supply chain easing really helped push down goods prices. The hard part is in the service sector where we're seeing inflation be more persistent and how they deal with that means how you, it really translates to what happens to the unemployment rate. So it's much more impactful to consumers this way. Markets have been fixated on monetary policy all year, but we've been steered off course to an extent because of the debt ceiling problem. And we're all looking at whether there's going to be a negotiation on time. Fitch has moved on its outlook rating for the sovereign credit. What happens from here, do you think, in terms of the economy? Do we see destabilizing effects even at this point because it's so last minute? You know, how are you viewing the situation from your lens? We've been here before in the United States. It was in 2011. I was watching it then. And it, it going to the brink is not good, especially with all the uncertainty in the economy. But when it's translated into Fed policy, it means that their decision making is not quite their own they are going to be influenced by this big global event, which is a political event. It's a process event generally. It's procedural, it's supposed to be, but it turns and morphs into something that's economic and not just obviously within the United States, but around the world. There's actually an appropriations process where you talk about spending. This vote is supposed to just uh, accommodate the spending that's already been approved by Congress, but you can see that it's being translated in a very different way and affecting even now uncertainty in the markets. I have a, a wonderful argument once a month with a, a chap out of Phoenix, I think he is, or he's certainly, uh, uh, maybe, uh, certainly uh, to the west of there. And basically he says to me, the US consumer is in great straits. And I say, I'm really worried about the state of the US consumer. All that COVID savings, it, it's being diminished aggressively. They're putting more money on um, flexible loans, such as credit cards and what have you, um, revolving credit. I think you're more on the cautious side about the US consumer's financial strength, I'm given some of the copy I've read about you. Well, first of all, you have to watch the consumer because they're yeah. basically the economy. They're two-thirds of the economy. But secondly, you know, the consumer has been supported by a lot of direct payments uh, coming out of the COVID emergency spending. The U.S. pumped $6 trillion into the economy to bridge the worst of the pandemic. But on the other side of that, most of those programs have now expired. Uh, we're going to see a, an end to student loan debt deferrals this summer, which will affect young people. And that means we've seen people come back into the labor market, which is good. We have labor shortages in the United States. They're here in the UK too, and in most advanced economies. But if the, the spending, the support has run out for the consumer, they really are dependent on a stable and growing and predictable economy. And so that's why it's really important to have predictable policies at the fiscal level and at the monetary level as well. So just piece this together for us as we consider the Fed playbook from here, skipping or pausing or whatever in June, pivoting, cutting later this year or holding for longer. What's the, the best case scenario that you think is going to play out? I think 
You know, the Fed minutes that were released yesterday, they suggested maybe a, a pause or a stabilization. Recent commentary has been a little more hawkish, uh, suggesting even another rate hike. There's still some attention to what's going on with the debt ceiling. The consistent part of the Fed message has been, though, 2% target. That has not changed. So they are on a mission to get down to 2%, not three, not four, too. And so that effect on the labor market is something we're going to be watching. It's going to be impactful for the consumer as interest rates might rise further if there's another hike. And so, uh, but the mission is clear in terms of their communications. It's a 2% target. So for you, that means we've got more rate hikes coming? It depends. <laughs> I know not the perfect answer here, but there's not a lot of certainty. It depends on what we see in the credit market. Much of the rest exactly, of us. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. If the the markets are doing some of the Fed's work for it by uh, restricting credit, uh, then the Fed may not have to hike. But it will have to depend on the other side of June when. The debt limit is hopefully raised, and we see what the data is telling us about inflation in the state of the consumer. I think this is quite telling. If you're still feeling your way through this based on the data point, then that tells you just how market participants need to also behave. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Anila Richardson with us, Chief Economist at ADP. Well, coming up on the show, Wall Street's fifth most valuable company added over $200 billion in after-hours trade on Wednesday, closing in on a $1 trillion market cap. And for more on the differences of opinion at the Fed, as well as the challenges facing the labour market on both sides of the Atlantic, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Uh, the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo will meet her Chinese counterpart uh, Wang Wantao in uh, Washington today. The meeting is said to be the first between cabinet-level officials in D.C. since Biden became president. Defense officials from the two countries also expected to hold talks early next month. Biden said he expects a thaw in relations with China at this month's G7 meeting. That's interesting because, well... Uh, I think he said it at the G7 meeting rather than uh, because of the... I mean, the Chinese aren't in the G7, so... Yeah, it's like miswording there, uh, or misorder of words. Uh, anyway, Microsoft and the group of Western intelligence agencies said state-backed Chinese hackers compromised critical U.S. cyber infrastructure in an attempt to gather intelligence. Microsoft also accused the group, codenamed Volt Typhoon, wow, look at that, Volt Typhoon, uh, of trying to disrupt communications systems between the U.S. and Asia. NVIDIA shares soared almost 30% in after-hours trade to a record high, increasing the chipmaker's market value by $220 billion. 
This after NVIDIA posted its biggest top and bottom line beats in over five years and forecast $11 billion in revenue for the second quarter, 50% higher than Wall Street estimates. Arjun joins us with more. Arjun, we're talking about uh, whether this company could be becoming a $1 trillion market cap company, and that is an exclusive club. You know, companies like Apple, for instance, um, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Tesla, Saudi Aramco, these are sort of best of the best. NVIDIA has been on everybody's radar for a while, but not in the, the same vein as some of these other big cap tech stocks. Are we thinking about leadership change now as we talk about this AI race? Yeah, well, well clearly, look, investors are looking for the winners and losers in, in what is AI. We've been talking around uh, this desk for the past few months about how you monetize AI, who are going to be the big players in AI going forward. And clearly, in the short term, it is NVIDIA seeing the boost. And I think the results were interesting. It was all about AI. You look at their gaming chips business, that fell 38% year on year. That That's in line from what we heard from from other uh, chip makers who provide uh, chips to, to PCs and other devices such as Samsung who have seen a, a difficult environment but it really was the data center business where they saw 14% year-on-year growth ahead of forecast here because they provide the GPUs or the graphics processing units that go into servers needed to train a lot of these AI tools and clearly Nvidia has I think uh, ChatGPT to thank for a lot of this. The way that has brought the AI conversation into the mainstream, the way that has sparked some sort of a race now between a lot of the tech giants, Microsoft, Google and others to really bring out innovative AI products that rely really uh, on Nvidia's chips and, and it was the forecast I think that was massive for the market and for investors uh, forecasting Q2 sales of 11 billion dollars much higher higher than the $7.5 billion expectation and the CFO saying that they have procured substantially higher uh, supply of chips to meet that demand. And I think that was really what drove that momentum after hours. But, and there is a big but, China. There are concerns about what comes next to the US-China trade war, particularly around chips. And we've seen it with Micron, for instance, the restrictions that China's now placed on the American company. Uh, just going back over history, what fiscal 2022 NVIDIA had 7.1 billion of revenue attributable to China and Hong Kong. There's a problem here, isn't there, if the Chinese decide that NVIDIA too should be on some sort of watch list or banned list? The geopolitics hangs over all of these chip companies. NVIDIA is sort of no exception to this rule. I think it's important to uh, sort of look at, at the two companies. I think Beijing made somewhat of a calculated move on Micron saying we think that we could replace these chips to some extent from the South Korean uh, uh, chip makers such as Samsung and SK Hynix because they were dealing with a different part of the market. When it comes to the semiconductors required for AI applications, uh, this is a very different market. This is where Nvidia has a clear leadership. Now, what, one thing you are seeing, and I think this perhaps is a long-term risk on top of the geopolitics, is companies like Google, but also a lot of the Chinese tech giants such as Alibaba and Baidu are designing their own chips specifically for AI applications. Now, if there are breakthroughs in this area, if they manage to design chips that actually are superior to NVIDIA, that's going to be a different story. If, for example, in a few years' time, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent come out with chip designs that are better than NVIDIA, then the Chinese government may take a different view on NVIDIA. But if you look at it right now, they need these chips if China is to progress uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence um, applications. That's your but. I've got an even bigger but. And that's not a metaphor. No, but I've got, even, I've got a different but. Uh, and my but is this, and we've got a board which uh, the team have beautifully prepared for us, and that is the concentration of risk uh, in the US equity story. And they've got a beautiful board they're going to show again now. 
Third time. Um, shall I try it one more time? Q chart. I've got a board that they're going to show and they're going to queue it up and they're going to show it now. Yeah, it's not happening, is it? And oh, there it is. Okay, great. So this is about the concentration <laughs> of, of performance in the S&P. Uh, and it was uh, given to me by Silver, uh, Howard Silverblatt, who is uh, S&P Global. He is the, the ultimate number cruncher when it comes to the S&P. So thank you for that, Howard, as well. And he's pointing out that the S&P total return year to date is, is pretty respectable, given the concerns. It's 8%, give or take, 7.9% as well. But if you take out the top contributing eight issues, which is seven companies, because there's a couple of Google listings or Alphabet listings, the market is actually down 0.3%. So uh, fantastic that NVIDIA is doing really well. And, and you know, good luck to the company and the numbers were knockout and all that. But it increases the risk, the concentration risk uh, of the uh, investor, our viewer, to those major companies. And I'll just go through the details of it, just in a little bit of um, color for you, because I think it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. So the year-to-date performance, Apple, 24%, Microsoft, 21%, NVIDIA, 15%, I think it was. I'm not sure if that's before or after the closing bell. Uh, Amazon up 11%. But the con contribution to the percentage gain for the S&P is enormous. So for instance, the S&P gain uh, from Apple, two percentage points on its own. Microsoft, 1.7%. NVIDIA, 1.2%. Amazon's about a percent. Uh, Meta is about a percent. Uh, and Alphabet, between the, the two listings, about another percent. Uh, and Tesla coming in with half percent as well. So my point being is those big gains you're getting on those stocks is negating pretty much everything else that's going on in the S&P. So the, what use is the S&P 500 or at least what use is 492 of those companies as a barometer of the US or as a barometer of returns when it's such tight concentration risk? So I can weigh in on that. I've just been actually reading a report from Data Trek, right. and they are talking about um, Wednesday, the 100th trading day of the year, where just five out of those 99 odd days make up the year-to-date gains. It's a very slim, narrow number of days mm. so far this year where you've seen gains and they've broken it down further three of the days where you saw the big gains they were related to big tech earnings so as a driver big tech is fairly instrumental the other two were down to macro related issues so that is telling you what the, the props or the triggers are for the market action and i'll just do one before we get arjun's comment on this 231 issues i of the stocks uh are up and 271 are down and it's 46 are up at least 20%, 43 are down at least 20%. My, my, my point, going back to your, your domain, which is technology as well, is, is, is how much are the bigger companies just getting bigger and bigger, and, and then there's the rest. And as such, are we once again going to start hearing about not only mono, monopolistic concerns, but actually concentration risk concerns? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the key here is when we heard the last round of earnings season is there are still risks that remain for the sector. And you're talking about concentration risk. When you look at Apple and Microsoft and others, they are worried about the macro factors going forward. And that poses the question, well, if that growth starts to stall somewhat uh, and perhaps these expectations that investors have of these growth companies continuing to grow in what is a difficult environment uh, don't materialize. Materialize, uh, and they don't meet those expectations, those stocks could go down. That could drag the broader S&P down. And that is a, a big concern, I think, when we come to concentration risk. When it comes to uh, do these bigger players get bigger, they do. And we've seen and we've, and we've seen that now in the AI race. race. We've seen NVIDIA really yeah. get its grip there. We've seen Microsoft and Google, etc. And so that's, that is something that's happening. And look, the EU this week with the, with the meta fine, it's continuing to circle we around some of these big companies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. 
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.